Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We're going to do a deep dive, uh, Conversations with Great Minds, with Frances Moore LaPaid. It's the 50-year anniversary of her book, Diet for a Small Planet. There's a new edition out. And she does a deep dive, not just into diet, but also into politics, into democracy, into you know, the consequences of how we eat for the planet as well as for our bodies. And I think you're going to find that an absolutely fascinating conversation. And also, energy cannibalism. This is absolutely fascinating. I was flagged about this by a post over on Daily Kos by Pakalolo in the community threads, where I occasionally post as well. And it's titled, Energy Cannibalism is Happening So Fast That the Collapse of the Oil Industry Will Blow Up Renewables, Will Derail Renewables. And here's what it is and how it works. When you pump oil out of the ground, there's a whole spectrum of amounts of effort it takes to get that oil. Most of us of a certain age remember the movies from back in the first half of the 20th century when people would go out to Oklahoma or Texas and they'd drill a water well thinking they would find water and they'd hit a certain depth and suddenly oil would come gushing out of the ground. They were called geysers or gushers or whatever. People got rich from that. I mean, you know, was, there's I believe there's one a clip of one of those B-roll that starts the Beverly Hillbillies. You know? <laughs> they, so they moved to Beverly Hills with all that oil money. So that requires virtually no energy at all to get the oil out of the ground, when it's just bubbling out of the ground. And the cost of producing that oil is referred to as cost of production. For example, as Dick Cheney pointed out in the months before we invaded Iraq, Iraq had some of the lowest production cost of oil in the world. 
because they had all these virgin oil fields that were untapped. And so you could produce oil in Iraq for $3 a barrel, $5 a barrel, at the most $10 a barrel. Typically, it was under $5 a barrel. Yeah, I covered this at, in, in considerable detail about 10 years ago in a program about this. On the other hand, over at Saudi Arabia, they've been sucking on that strong long enough that now they've got to run actual electrical machines to pump the oil out. And that electricity requires energy produced by burning oil. And so, you know, 10, 15, in some cases, 20% of the oil that is brought out of the ground has to be burned to get that oil. Right now, worldwide, according to the research cited in this diary over at Daily Kos, 15.5% of all the energy that is produced is used to get that energy. So you get 100 barrels of oil, it takes you 15 and a half barrels to get it, you're left over with roughly 85 barrels of oil. But that number, that percentage, that 15% is going up. And it's going up rapidly. It's far more energy intensive to pull oil out of the Arctic, for example, or pull it off an offshore rig and transport it onto, uh, you know, up to, up to the shore uh, and, then, and then transport it via these long pipelines to refineries. So, you know, we're starting to hit the point, in fact, they're suggesting that by 2024, which is, if I'm doing my math right, three years from now, the amount of energy that we use to just produce oil is going to be 25% of all the oil produced. So right now it's 15%. Within three or four years, it's going to be 25%. And by 2050, half of all the energy used is going to be required to pull that oil out of the ground. Now, this means a couple of things. Number one, it means that oil is going to start getting much more expensive. And you're seeing that literally right now in the price of oil and the price of gasoline. And that will drive inflation. And this is one of the big inflationary pressures that literally nobody is talking about. And I, in some ways, you could argue that that's a good thing for green energy because the more expensive oil becomes, the more attractive green energy becomes. You know, I, I drive my car on 100% electricity for a fraction of what it would cost if I was burning gasoline right now. Now, that wasn't, wouldn't have been the case a couple of years ago when gas was super cheap. But right now, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to buy electricity, plug my car just into my house at, I think it's around $0.07 cents a kilowatt hour, to, to charge my car that way rather than put gas in it. Well, that's going to get even more, I've, you know, as the price of gas goes up. And I, I saw a headline on Drudge yesterday that there was a city in California where gas was five bucks a gallon. It's going to go higher. You know, I, I'm, if, if these numbers on, glo on worldwide energy production, now this isn't entirely the United States, but, you know, that in just the next five years, you're going to see the cost of energy production going from 15% of energy to 25% of energy. You're going to see the cost of gasoline go to 10 bucks a gallon in the next three years. And that's going to drive electrification of our transportation systems really efficiently. And I think that's a good thing, broadly speaking. Although, as I said, it's going to produce inflation. And then you're going to get so-called conservative politicians just being hysterical about inflation. Oh, my God, inflation. Are you kidding? Can't have that. 
all caused by government spending, don't you know? We need to cut Social Security to stop inflation. They're already trotting this out, right? I haven't heard Joe Manchin say this yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is the next thing he says. Oh, you know, if we give eyeglasses to seniors, that's going to cause inflation. We give free college to, to, to students, that's going to cause inflation. We, government shouldn't be spending money. It causes inflation. No, government spending money does not cause inflation. There are only two things that cause inflation. Number one, government diluting the value of money like Nixon did in 70 and 71 and 72 when he devalued the dollar against all the other major currencies of the world by first by 10% and then by 11% those two years. That causes inflation. And we're not doing that right now. And the other thing that causes inflation is a shortage of, of uh, essential goods. And, and we're seeing a shortage of goods right now, broadly speaking, because the economy's bouncing back. Everybody's all hysterical about, oh my God, you know, do your Christmas shopping now. We're running out of stuff in our stores. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's getting more expensive to build houses. There's no building materials. That's a good thing. I mean, it's not, you know, essentially a good thing that it's harder to buy some things. But that's a sign that the economy is recovering. Now, it's a little more, it's also a sign that the economy is recovering in a way that's more heavily skewed towards goods than towards services, which is a a change in how our economy works from the last 100 years. Because people are not spending as much money going to restaurants because they're afraid of getting COVID. They're not spending as much money going to the theater because they're afraid of getting COVID. They're not spending as much money going to sporting events or just shopping in the mall because they're afraid of getting COVID. And instead, they're taking that same money and they're using it to buy things, mostly online. It's why Jeff Bezos has enough money to shoot himself into outer space. But it means that we're demanding more goods than we typically do. Because people are finding, hey, I got a couple, you know, I got $1,000 left over this year that, I, you know, I would have spent going to restaurants. I think I'll, I think I'll buy, you know, a new gym for my, for my basement. Or uh, I'll replace my color TV or, you know, have elaborate Christmas gifts. So this is what's going on. But I'll, so that inflation has nothing to do with, you know, anything that any politician is going to control, frankly. But this increase in the difficulty of extracting oil and therefore the increased cost of oil and that inflation from the lack of goods will probably wash out of the economy. It'll, you know, there will be a permanent reduction in the value of the dollar. We're not going to see prices ever go down again. That doesn't happen. You don't want that to happen. That's called a depression when prices go down or a severe recession. So, you know, prices are hitting new highs, and that's why workers are striking and saying, hey, wait a minute, our wages need to hit new highs too. But this increase in the price of oil, keep an eye on this, because this is going to have really significant political effects, really significant geographical, you know, or uh, what would you call it, geopolitical effects, the relationships between countries. It's going to increase the power of countries that are oil rich, like Russia and Saudi Arabia. It's going to decrease the, the power of countries that are oil poor, not just oil, natural gas and coal as well, like much of Europe. It's, I think we're going to see some fundamental realignments here coming up. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And this is all part of this shaking out process as we head into what hopefully will be a coal-free, oil-free, gas or carbon-free future.
Michael in Cassopolis, Michigan. Hey, Michael, what's up? Ah, here we go again. Hi, Tom. Pardon me if I stutter. I've fought this since childhood, but being a public education classroom teacher, that kind of helped a little bit. I'm sure there are a lot of TV hosts, radio personalities that overcome it, you know? And hey, you and way, Joe Biden, Moses, Michael. Hey, Moses was a stutterer, according to huh. the Bible. Interesting. The guy who was in uh, Iroquois, I was going to say mythology, but history, I guess they would call it. There was this guy who came and taught a fellow named Hiawatha, who was not the Hiawatha of lore and legend. This was just a, apparently it was a common name. But there was a guy who came and taught this fellow how to create the Iroquois Confederacy, how to create, basically, you know, we modeled our democracy after the Iroquois Confederacy to a large extent. And that guy's name, and I'm sorry, I can't remember it. I'm not sure I could ever pronounce it, but it was like something like Dilga Gagotha. But that guy's name, when you translated it from Iroquois into English, was the stutterer. So, and he was the one who basically was the kind of the Jesus figure, you know, the bringer of wisdom to the Iroquois people. So, you know, a lot lot of famous stutterers around there, Michael. What's up, anyhow? A lot of famous stutterers, you know. Lord told him to take his brother Aaron. So, anyway, you like the tweet I sent. It was a picture of our county Democratic headquarters. And I told you about a week before the election, we were just fired up, ready to go. So, I was optimistic. So, I want you to understand, it wasn't just a pretty picture. There are people who've been working in this party there in that county office for years, keeping it open right next door. There's a thrift store. The chair lady of our county party, she works diligently, and it was hard in 2016. I want people to know the meeting right after that election, we had to knuckle down and get ourselves together, go to the state convention, put ourselves on the ballot, And I want you to know if it was hard then, it should be easier now for you to go down to your party and move this thing forward. I'm a progressive, yet I have to work with people who've established the party and have the infrastructure, okay? So my point is our values. We don't need to be taught American values. The screams of the children and parents in the slave market led to the abolition movement. That's an American value. Not having a young girl, a teenage girl, have to go have a coat hanger abortion, that's an American value. We don't need to be taught family values, my man. And I sent you another tweet of the water here in Michigan and Kalamazoo. The stuff comes out of the tap. I showed you the water in this last tweet I sent. What's floating there. That's something everyone can relate to. Rather than talk to about climate exclusively, People can't see the temperature, but they can see in the water what's there. They can see what's in the food. If you could just hear how hogs scream on the killing floor, we would change a lot of things, okay? Yeah. It's just... So that's why it's illegal to take pictures of, of slaughter exactly. operations. Because you know, it would turn people this. into vegetarians. Michael, thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet, 50th Anniversary Edition, just reissued. And this is from the introduction to the 50th Anniversary Edition. It starts out with a quote from George Orwell. To see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. I begin this journey with the realization that growing and eating plant-centered diets was a great choice. Today it's a no-contest necessity. Either we now make a big turn or life on earth as we know it is gone forever. 
Whoa, this blunt declaration rocks me. I'll admit it, it's taken me decades to get here and I'm delighted now for this opportunity to share my learning journey with you, dear reader. You'll forgive me though if my first thoughts are of my own delight as over the years, strangers have told me, your book changed my life. One story I'll surely never forget is from a friend and longtime head of the Berklee College of Music, Roger Brown. Quote, I was teaching in a small village in Kenya in 1979 when I came across a tattered version of your book, he told me. I read it on a mountain by moonlight and it changed the course of my life. I'm still smiling. When anyone tells me of the book's effect on them, I always have to blurt out, yeah, me too. <laughs> Diet for a Small Planet started as a one-page handout when I was 26 and it has profoundly shaped my life's quest. Now in its 50th anniversary, I strive to capture key lessons that help me to this day and that I hope will help you in these challenging times. Hmm, challenging doesn't quite do it. Over the past few years, we have been battling the fiercest storm of my lifetime. Years of attacks on the integrity of our democracy, leading to the first ever citizen's assault on the Capitol. A pandemic deemed the worst in a century and murders by police that have fueled the Black Lives Matter movement, furthering, we can hope, our nation's long delayed reckoning with systemic racism. At the same time, our climate crisis nears a tipping point that will drastically hasten destruction. And what first shocked me into action, hunger amid plenty, has gotten worse in recent years, even though the world's food supply offers one-fifth more calories for each of us than it did 50 years ago. Here at home, hunger is also rising. But in a mighty storm, sometimes the biggest tree comes crashing down, and for the first time, we can see its roots. Now is such a storm. So how do we grasp the roots and use what we discover to pull ourselves back from catastrophe and guide us toward life itself? The great news here is that millions in the United States and many more around the world are grasping the root causes of our intertwined crises and remaking their lives in ways aligned with what humans and natures need to thrive. 50 years ago, my youthful aha was that food has special power, as every day our very personal food choices connect us to each other and to all of nature. Shock in discovering the needlessness of hunger triggered in me new ways of seeing what's profoundly amiss in our world and even our power to fix it. Back then, I had no idea how urgent my message would soon become. Driven by tightening corporate power over our democracy, harms from meat-centered agriculture and diets have continued to mount, damaging human health, the natural world, and the climate. And now the ultimate harm. We have destroyed so many species, largely in feeding ourselves, that we face the sixth great extinction of life on Earth. To avoid planetary disaster, warns natural historian David Attenborough, we must allow the reflourishing of life by greatly reducing the land area we farm and, quote, quickly and the most effective way is to change our diet, end quote. Moving beyond the vast inefficiency of meat-centered eating and choosing plant-centered diets, he projects, would cut in half the land use and still produce plenty of food for all. Now, with vastly more at stake than when my own eyes first opened, it's critical to grasp how we got here. So let's go for those roots. Over the 50 years since I sat in the UC Berkeley Library pondering the root causes of hunger, I've tried to keep digging into the question beneath the question to help me grasp why we humans have messed up so badly. And here's the deepest question my digging has turned up so far. Why are we together creating a world that as individuals none of us would choose? After all, I've never met anyone who gets up in the morning vowing to make another child starve or to turn up the planet's temperature. 
In the 20th anniversary edition of this book, I introduced the power of ideas to explain what seems inexplicable. I invite you to read my introduction to that edition directly following this one. Today, I express the root challenge this way. While seeing is believing is a common expression for our species, the reverse is often true. Believing is seeing, or as Albert Einstein put it more directly, it is theory which decides what we can observe. In other words, our internalized filters can blind us to solutions right in front of our noses, requiring precisely the constant struggle George Orwell calls to us in that opening quote. One filter above all blocks us from solutions, a belief that life is still made out of parts, when in truth all life is connected. I can see in my mind's eye the twinkly grin of the late German physicist Hans-Peter Dürer, who a decade ago laid it out to me simply. Frankie, in life there are no parts, only participants. Got it, Hans-Peter, and I've never forgotten, and it is the core truth of our being. The book is the 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LaPay. Diet for a Small Planet. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You know, there's not a lot of books that have consequentially altered the course of literally millions of people's lives and arguably even the course of, of a nation's trajectory. You think of Ralph Nader, Unsafe at Any Speed, or Rachel Carlson's Silent Spring. Francis Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, is one of those books. It's one of those books that has had an enormous impact on the United States and, and frankly all around the world on a whole bunch of different levels and so I'm super pleased to have Francis Moore LePay with us as our conversations with great minds conversation Frankie welcome to the program it's great to have you back on it's been a while very much you are my hero I hope you know I hope you know <laughs> that uh, back at you yeah it's a thrill a real thrill Thanks. and I just am so touched that you read that first section of the opening of the 50th anniversary. Oh, I'm so touched that you did that because it really does express why I'm here again 50 years later. Well, thank you. 
on our non-commercial stations. When our commercial stations are in a break, we insert book reports here, and that was our book report. It was a short reading from Diet for a Small Planet. So I'd like to kind of break this into pieces and start out with just the my diet stuff, you know, what impact does diet have on human health? What have we learned? What had you learned at that point in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, as you were putting this book together and, and bringing it to print that caused you to alter your eating habits with regard to, I mean, we'll get into the, to the small planet part of it, but you know, just the, the human diet health part of it. What did you know then and what have you learned since? Well, then I knew very little about the health part of it. I had grown up in Fort Worth, Texas, also known as Cowtown. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we ate hamburgers and <laughs> roast beef, etc. So I did not know really much about the nutrition of it, meaning eating meat, not eating meat. What so alarmed me, what so shocked me, is the tremendous amount of waste of agricultural and our earth's resources to produce that meat, we we get so little back from the grain-fed standard that we had moved to that I was just shocked that the experts were telling us that we were at the earth's limits when in fact we were actually shrinking the capacity of the earth to feed us by feeding so much to livestock. Just to put a number on that, Tom, now about 80% of our agricultural land, including grazing, is devoted to livestock production that supply us with 18% of our calories. So that's some measure of how much is lost along the way. So actually at the time, I the only <laughs> evidence we had then in 1970, 71 was Seventh Day Adventists. Have you ever heard about that? Oh, yeah. I knew some of them. And yeah, go ahead. Tell the story. They were vegetarian because the evidence was that, hey, they <laughs> they don't eat meat. They're vegetarian and they're doing a lot better on longevity in particular. And that was the only little piece of evidence we had then. But I really, in the first edition, wasn't so occupied with the health piece as I was the waste piece. It was before, of course, we knew the climate impact of a meat-centered diet and, and overall health and species decimation. As you read in the opening, I quote David Attenborough about how the brain-fed meat-centered diet is implicated in this massive species extinction in which all life depends on all these critters. A lot of that is from pesticides, which have become so much more toxic and so are threatening many, many insect species. So that's my short answer right. to that. Well, I, you know, I, I recall in the 60s, I think, I think I became a vegetarian in 67 or 68. And of course, you know, vegetarian meant you were still eating dairy and still eating eggs. And friends and parents and whatnot were saying, oh my God, you're gonna die of a protein deficiency. And your book was actually one of the things that convinced me, I mean, it was half a decade later, but that I wasn't gonna die of a protein deficiency. I mean, you know, it was kind of a combination of the anti-war movement, which many of us in the anti-war movement were becoming vegetarians as a statement of nonviolence. And then also I had taken transcendental meditation training, you know, the Maharishi and all this, which is Hinduism, which is vegetarian. And so it just seemed like the thing to do. But you laid out in your book, uh, you know, combining different amino acids to come up with complete proteins. We now know that 
that concern was exaggerated, but the essential, the whole essential amino acids thing. And it was a, a remarkable revelation for me that if you mixed beans and rice together, you got everything you needed, right? It was just as good as beef. Yeah, I love that. that for a minute? Yeah, I love that so many traditional diets throughout the world of indigenous peoples have combined grains and legumes, you know, the peas, beans, and lentils. And I thought that was just so cool that it, we, our bodies told us what to do. And you're right that back then, <laughs> I often, Tom, people would say to me, oh, you made peace in my family. That was your biggest impact because my parents thought I would die. (laughs) (laughs) So That's what my parents were thinking. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. So we've just grown now. And and as I say, in the new 50th anniversary edition, I've said, relax, relax. Yes. You know, there's maybe something to this complementary protein stuff, but we don't need to even think about it because if we eat healthfully, if we eat whole foods and for a range of foods, we get enough protein because Americans eat now, Tom, twice the proteins our bodies can use. And we do not store protein. We just use it as energy if we have more than we can use as protein. So it's, it's really so much easier than we thought that we just can relax about it and just look for what's healthy and good. And and just another thought I had riffing off on that was that, you know, people said to me, oh, you know, you're giving up so much and how is this sacrifice? And I said, no, no, no. I just discovered that actually there are only a few kinds of meat. But if you turn to the plant world, you see multi, you know, all the variety of colors and taste and textures and traditions that you can choose from in terms of, you know, Latin or Indian or Indonesian cuisine to get inspired. So it was always a journey of discovery, not a journey of deprivation or cutting back. Well, and in fact, most cultures around the world historically, and this is also true of uh, indigenous and aboriginal cultures, used meat not as a primary ingredient, but more as a, a supplement to principally vegetable diet, uh, simply because of the availability of it, if for no other reason. I mean, there are some exceptions to that. People who lived in the Arctic, you know, who are living on seals and fish, but by and large, that's the case, is it not? Most societies yeah. around the world are not meat-based in their eating to begin with. Right, exactly. That Yes, in, in traditional societies, we evolved in these tight-knit tribal communities that we did eat meat when the, the hunter would go out and get some, and then we would share it. What That's one of the things that I learned in anthropology, that it wasn't just the hunter's family, but everybody got to eat some of that. So it was a complement to the plant-based, and a lot of the plant-based was from women out there gathering. Yeah. Yeah, the hunter-gatherer societies, there you go. (laughs) We're talking with Francis Moore-LePay, the activist and author of over 20 books, including Diet for a Small Planet, that just came out, a new and updated 50th anniversary edition. She is a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, MIT, and Suffolk University in Boston. Just to name a few, smallplanet.org is the website. On Twitter, FMLAPPE. I'm curious about how your personal evolution of, you know, what you eat, how you eat has happened over all these years. Yeah. You know, it pretty much happened when I woke up in the learning about how wasteful our grain-fed, meat-centered diet is. And I I don't think it's changed radically since then, because 
at, at all. I, I also wanted to point out that I had been this classic American female, I think common American, you know, experience for females being obsessed about their weight and counting calories. I was one of those. And when I shifted to the plant-centered eating, I just got to the weight that seemed right for my body and it hasn't changed in all those years. So that's pretty much who I am now is where I was at the end of 1971. And, going forward and it served you well uh, you know obviously i think this is such an extraordinary issue and how do we best do outreach to americans who have been trained on the food pyramid and the you know the, the meat industry basically has been a large part of our lives just you know telling us and frankly i i don't know what they're doing now in school but you know when i was a kid in school in the 50s and 60s it was you must have meat you know it was, it was mm -hmm. part of the food pyramid how do we react to that? And how has America changed in that regard with regard to education? Well, I'm not sure about the education piece of it, but I do know that there is a much greater emphasis now on the value of whole plant foods. And we see this in the, you know, the more community gardens there are and the thousands of community-supported farms of where you can, as we do here, we get a share that we have, so we have fresh produce all summer. And in farmer's markets, wow, that's really taken off. So I think there's more awareness, and certainly I've seen the reports from the food industry saying that, you know, this kind of a Whole Foods shopping is a greater share of increased sales in the food world. And of course, you go into any restaurant now and there is always, almost always a plant option. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that did not exist at all when I began. In fact, in my office here, uh, within a few blocks, just in the last four years or so, I think four plant-centered options in restaurants for lunch have opened up. And so I just feel it here in the Boston area very strongly, yeah, this shift. I, yeah, and it's happening all over. I mean, same thing here in Oregon, in Portland. We've got a bunch of, of vegan or nearly vegan restaurants and and uh, and even a food truck. <laughs> you know, so it's like really good stuff. Yeah, seriously. It's great, wow. great food, too. We'll be right back with Frances Moore LePay. Her new book, or her, old, her book, Diet for a Small Planet, is out in a brand new edition, updated for 2021. Diet for small plant. Ahead of the United Nations Climate Summit, there is a new dump of documents that's just breathtaking. Out of countries, actually, this time. This isn't just, you know, sleazy companies. The Saudis, the OPEC countries, they're all saying, hey, you know, instead of focusing on getting rid of fossil fuels, why don't we focus on how to get carbon out of the atmosphere and stuff like that? You know, let us keep selling our fossil fuels. And Brazil and Argentina, countries that produce a lot of meat rather than oil, they are all upset because the, the United Nations Climate Summit, the, this initial document that they're trying to put out, points out that about a quarter of the world's carbon dioxide emissions are coming from the production of meat, which is pretty breathtaking. And they're saying, oh, hey, well, let's not talk about meat here. We really don't want to talk about all that. I've got a detailed deep dive into it on a new video that you can find over at TomHartman.com. Check it out.
talking with Frances Morlapay. She is the author of Diet for a Small Planet, along with 19 other books, and or, or more than 20 other books, I guess. And uh, it's now out in the, this new 20th century edition, as it or 21st century edition, and just remarkable. A protein factory in reverse. Tell me about this, Francis. Well, here's one fact from that protein factory in reverse, is that when we eat grain-fed meats, beef that is, we only get, of the calories that that cow has eaten, we get 3% of the calories back in the beef that we eat. So that's what I meant. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big shrinking machine that we have created, and it's one that is implicated in a lot of our poor health. I just learned that the World Health Organization has now deemed processed meat from hot dogs and salami, etc., processed meat as a carcinogen and red meat as a possible carcinogen. Wow, wow. So basically what we're doing by converting cropland, uh, we take cropland, we grow crops, you know, soybeans and whatnot on that. We feed it, course, to, uh -huh. we feed it to animals and then we eat the animals and we're receiving only 3% of essentially all the nutrients that were taken from the sun and the air and the water and, and the, the minerals and whatnot in the soil. Um, we're only getting about 3% of that. In, in the calories that we eat, it is the calorie to calorie from the yeah. feed, just the feed that is fed, the calories of the feed. Yeah, yeah that's has, it. So, has, is, is there a, a, a political? Is there a movement within the agricultural community now to try to move away from the crops that are grown to feed to animals, feed crops toward crops, yeah. Yeah, toward fruits and vegetables, you know, human food crops. Yes, there has been, and I think for a long time, just the difficulty, this is not going to surprise you, but our food system, the monopoly or oligopoly power of all aspects you know, up the chain of our food system in terms of meatpacking or whatever the piece of the, the puzzle is, is very centrally controlled and takes seeds. When I began way back when, there were 50 seed companies competing to bring seeds of a variety of kinds to farmers, and now they're just about four. It's just a handful that, that are so dominant. So I think it's much harder to imagine because so many farmers are stuck, dependent upon just from year to year, dependent upon the structure of where they get their inputs, you know, the fertilizers and the pesticides, and then how they sell it to the processors who turn it into feed or whatever. So it is hard to break out of that highly concentrated system. But some people are doing it. I tell a story in the book about one of my favorite learnings has been the fact that trees and crops do not compete with each other and around the world throughout history people have discovered that mixing trees and crops in the same fields actually benefits it all in greater overall output and so I highlight the Savannah Institute in Wisconsin that has taken the lead in this and there are many others doing this as well that are breaking free from the dominant, wasteful, and so harmful practices. And just, you know, ecological organic farming, it is expanding much faster than 
other types of farming, but it still is a small percentage in the United States. But even, what did I say in in that chapter, that there are a handful of southern states that within five years doubled their organic acreage. So that Hmm. is a sign that is significant, that people are looking to free themselves from the harms of pesticides. On that note, too, Tom, another thing that we can be grateful for Biden is that they finally ended, banned now this, uh, if I can say it right, the chloriferous, how do you say it? It is an insecticide that does nerve damage, especially children who are exposed to it. And that has now been banned. Right. It had, my recollection is it had been banned by Obama, but hadn't come into effect. And so Trump did away with it. Am I remembering that? Exactly. That's it. That's it. Biden put the ban back into place. It's great. We're talking with Francis Moore LaPay. It's our conversations with great minds. We'll be back. Her book, Diet for a Small Plant, out in a new edition just now. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And our website is smallplanet.org. You can tweet her at FMLAPPE. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Welcome back to our Conversations with Great Minds Hour with Francis Moore LePay, the activist. Frankie, let's talk about uh, health and the environment. How do these things tie together? Well, as we have moved to this very wasteful grain-fed meat center diet, highly concentrated control, we have also seen a huge growth of disease in the sense that in the last 50 years, approximately five-fold increase in the U.S. in diabetes. And part of that is moving to a highly processed diet. Now it's called ultra-processed. So it's both the meat-centered and the ultra-processed foods that have added salt, added sugar. And so that is a dramatic, dramatic change. 
And it's estimated now that about a third of Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic, meaning that they're on the pathway. So I think then we also know that we understand that eating a grain-fed, meat-centered diet also contributes to heart disease and certain cancers. And so it's really not healthy. <laughs> yeah, Put it and it's not healthy for the environment either. Right, because what happens, what has been happening is, as you opened up with this threat of the sixth great extinction, that this uniform growing of these crops over such wide areas and destroying rainforests to do it, I want to return to that in a sec, but it brings about the decimation of so many insect species in particular that there is a great fear of that over the next few decades that we could really see this loss of insects that are essential to growing food. And in the rainforest, something like 80% of the rainforest destruction, say, in the Amazon has been to what? To make room for cattle grazing and for feed crops. And the Amazon is the richest bio center of biodiversity in the world. So that is a huge, huge loss, and that really contributes a lot to the environmental crisis that as we destroy forests, then that is part of our destruction of what is absorbing carbon. And it was estimated that if we move to a plant-centered diet, this peer-reviewed study found that we could be the equivalent in terms of benefit to the climate challenge equivalent to taking basically all the cars and trucks and trains and ships off the road and off the seas. I mean, that is really significant. So it is when we're choosing a plant-centered diet, we know that we are reducing our human impact on creating climate change. So you note in the book that I believe it was over the last 50 years, our meat exports have more than doubled you know, so we're obviously, you know, growing more and more beef in particular, but also pork and chicken and other meats. How would America be different if the whole country were to adopt not necessarily even a, a vegan or, or a vegetarian diet, but just cut their meat consumption back to what is pretty much the norm for the world, which is maybe one day a week eating a, a small enough amount of meat that it, it just makes up that small amount of the diet that is typically, you know, it's what you typically find in other, not necessarily other so-called westernized or advanced or developed or wealthy societies, but what you find in societies that are living the way that they've been living sustainably for thousands of years. How would America be different if, if we were to shift away from a meat-based diet as a country? Yeah, well, one of the first things, as I said, is that we, we now are one of the worst, and per capita, we are way up there as one of the very worst climate culprits, I like to think of it as. You know, so we are continue, continue to emit greenhouse gases at a very high rate, especially per capita, compared to the rest of the world. So that would really go down big time as I was talking about how shifting to a plant-centered diet would overall be the equivalent of taking all of these vehicles off the road if we did that globally. So I think that we would definitely remove ourselves from being one of the very worst climate culprits. And we would also, to do that, would involve such 
so much diversity of the use of our land because we're using so much now. Our two major crops that take up, you know, a huge portion of our agricultural land are corn and soy in these huge monocrops, and those are what are destroying. I, I believe it's um, um, estimated that that 40% of our insects could be extinct within the next few decades because of this kind of monoculture, single crops over these huge acres using pesticides. And so we would be, what, we would be <laughs> protecting the diversity of insect and other forms of life that we need to grow food into the future. So that would be a really, really good thing. Um, and we would certainly see these health care costs and troubles and pain and misery go down uh, related to, for example, this very extreme level of diabetes that we have now, where, as I say, a third of Americans are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. So, you know, we think of all that money we'd save on healthcare alone, as well as just the vitality that we'd have. So to get there would require democratization of our government so that corporate lobbyists, and now which there are 20 lobbyists in Washington for every person that, you know, we have elected to represent us there. So I want to point out agribusiness lobbyists are a bigger part of that than even the oil and gas industry. So another thing that would have to be part of this transition is we step up as citizens and say, hey, we don't want industry determining this uh, dangerous agricultural system that's bad for our health and bad for the earth. We want, you know, we want our real voice of Americans of what is best for all of us. So I think that means really stepping up to get money out of the controlling place it has in our government. Yeah, there's, there's a kind of a cycle of the lobbyists to the politicians to the to the subsidies for you know for the agricultural industry, and on with that. And in fact, you you talk about democracy. I, you've written a couple of books about democracy in the United States, but you know I don't think most people make the connection between how we eat and how we govern ourselves. You know, beyond the obvious, you know, yeah, there's lobbyists who want to funnel money to the people who are growing our food. Can you speak to that? What you know? What do you mean? The democracy is the problem. Well, you you named it too. I, I just checked my facts here that that half of retiring sen- senators <laughs> end up as lobbyists and often revolve around you know between those roles. So um, there is this very clear problem we have of people who we think are representing us when they actually have ties to the problem and that are being rewarded for voting for policies that are not in the interest of their constituents. So that is just very simple. By the way, I just looked at how much a German Germany spends per capita, because that's the only fair way to do it on a national election compared to us. And it came out like 400 and something times greater here than there. If if you look mm-hmm. at the 14.4 billion dollars spent on our last election, and that was doubled, it doubled in one election cycle. So I think that's a really clear call. And the food connection for me from the very beginning has been that 
What's more personal, hardly anything more personal than what we put into our mouths every day. And if we align those choices with what we know is best for us, best for the earth, best for others, we feel more powerful. We don't feel like a victim so much. And that changes our energy, I believe, that that making those choices that align with the world we want and uh, that enables us to think, well, what else could I do, right? And to go deeper and to remind, it's like for me, I, I used to say, you know, wearing a string around my finger every day, I'm choosing these foods that are, that I, that aren't just responding to advertising, right? And it makes me remember all my connections to you, to all of us, to, you know, our government and what the policies they're making and to the earth. So, I just think it's a great way to start, and it, it's not a it's not a distraction in my view. It's a key. Yeah, remarkable. We're talking with Francis Moore LePay, the author of Diet for a Small Planet, just out now in new, new and improved or new and updated 50th anniversary edition. Uh, one of the truly remarkable books of our time. One of the truly remarkable authors of our time. Smallplanet.org is the website. Uh, FM LePay is the Twitter handle. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with Francis Morlapay in just a moment. So, Frankie, tell me about movements. We saw the kind of consumer movement that came out of uh, Ralph Nader's work and the environmental movement that came out of Rachel Carlson's book. And I would argue that a vegetarian movement came out of your book. Do you see it that way? And I remember there there used to be a North American Vegetarian Society that was a big deal back in the 60s and 70s. I don't even know if they're still around. They may, may well be. But at some point, it's sort of like, you know, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement. Well, at some point, it just became all of us, you know, and then the war ended. How separate is the movement part of this from the just, okay, that's, this is the normal part of life part of it? Gosh, I don't know the answer to that because I'm so living it, you know, mm-hmm. and I guess here in the greater Boston area probably is not a <laughs> sample of the country. So I, I really don't know how I answer that, but I do realize, as, as you say, there's just an just burst of appreciation that it's possible to be healthy. In fact, you might be healthier, you know, the plant-centered diet. And just the term plant-centered, I think, is really helpful rather than saying vegetarian. Right. Uh, plant-centered, uh, I call it plant and planet-centered now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because we really have to understand that this is not just about our personal health, it's about the health of all. And we can't get there from here if we, you know, in terms of the climate crisis, for example. We can't get there and, well, overall health. But um, so I I do feel that it's, it's, it is beyond uh, where, you, like you say, a vegetarian movement. And it's more shifting into overall consciousness that plant-centered, planet-centered is good on all these many levels. And it makes just so much sense from the pocketbook sense or however you want to call it. So I, I, I guess my social movement eagerness is to 
link it to the democracy movement. Mm-hmm. That really we're at a stage where we, a movement of movements is the way we need to think about the democracy movement. Because we, whether it's in, for the environment or whether it's any really key, key reform, racial justice, you name it, if we don't have democracy, we're not going to get there. And so I think this movement of movements that we can be part of Black Lives Matter, we can be part of the environmental movement of coming out for, you know, demonstrations by the Extinction Rebellion and and wonderful people in that movement and also embrace the democracy movement as that which underlies. And so we've created a website, democracymovement.us, mm-hmm. which I like a lot because it's us and <laughs> mm-hmm. it's also the United States. So there is an intro for whatever you're, wherever you are in the country, we have a map. You can go to your state and see what's happening because right now, as you I'm sure have talked about, Tom, is there's a big effort to restrict our democratic rights um, by the Republican Party. So... Yeah. (laughs) You've got to step up. There you go. We're talking with Frances Moore LaPay about her uh, new 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, which is just an absolutely remarkable book. Frankie, you were talking about democracymovement.us and I'm, I'm looking at this page here uh, worried about democracy the doc- democracy movement is here together let's make history how does this tie into the themes of diet for a small planet you you're you play a role in this website yeah well i did say 50 years ago more or less that hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food but a scarcity of democracy because nobody chooses to go hungry and so if you're not eating enough to be healthy then you are deprived of power if you have no voice then you're not living in a democracy and that is got to be understood that nobody chooses this most primal deprivation and we in america have to grasp that we think of ourselves as a democracy leader in the world but we are not i i follow the rankings you know where we are there's a project at harvard that teams up with the university of sydney that ranks us the electoral integrity project puts us behind about 55 countries including south africa poland peru then there's another center in Sweden that ranks us about behind about 30 countries, and 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 they note that there's been a bit of backsliding, and we're right in there, named as one of the countries with the most gone backward. So I don't want to depress people. Always want to motivate us, but I think we can't move forward if we have an illusion about who we are as Americans. And so it's really important that we share this bad news as well as the good news that there are people working for democracy reforms. And we have on our website a lot of examples of where ordinary people have stepped up and done amazing things at the state and city level. So how best do we do we get there? I mean, it it seems to me like the core cancer in our democratic systems, and I realize we're, we're kind of drifting away from diet here a bit, but I get the, inter, the interconnection. But it seems that the core cancer is money and that the Supreme Court has legalized billionaires and big corporations owning politicians. 
and we have a few politicians, uh, even in the Democratic Party, who are you know outright owned and proud of it. But the entire Republican Party seems to have embraced this. What steps do you see to to resolve that issue? Well, we ultimately, I agree with those who believe or who assert that that we must reverse and affect the impact of Citizens United that opened the floodgates. But believe me, we had money in politics before then. I think that was, what, 2010 with the United Citizens United? But I just want to underscore that there are... particularly at state and city levels. For example, we tell the story of a young woman in Michigan, Katie Fahey, who just got truly upset about the degree of gerrymandering in her state. And just this one young woman started a campaign and then turned into traveling all across the state with all people. And there's a beautiful documentary about her. And in the end, they got uh, resolution. They got the system changed so that there could be fair districting in Michigan. And so we tell the stories on our website, democracymovement.us, of people like Katie and others who are working for, you know, voting rights. The three arenas are the voting rights protection and the end of gerrymandering and then money out of politics. And even, for example, public financing, which was part of the what I think of as a Sarbanes bill, the, what became H.R. 1 and then S. 1, with a whole raft of reforms. One of them was to enable public financing of elections, which we had. You know, Jimmy Carter won with public financing. Mm-hmm. So that's not forbidden by the Citizens United no, disastrous ruling. Not wiped out, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm completely with you. Frankie, we're out of time. But thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for writing this this absolutely transformational book, Diet for a Small Plan. Francis Moore. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Back at you. It has been a real honor. And thank you for being with us today. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag your it, and check out your diet. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.